folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac here today, and we are excited. We are excited because we got a great guest today. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you are listening to us right now. So congratulations, you figured that out. And of course, if you enjoy what we're doing, check us out on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our patrons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only mini-series called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series on the Patreon before its release as well, so if you want to hear stuff from all of the episodes, which at this point you're at near the end of the show anyway, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to go check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode of this mini-series and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Today, we have a very special guest, Tom Wessels a terrestrial ecologist and professor emeritus at Antioch University in New England, where he founded the master's degree program in conservation biology. With interests in forest, desert, arctic, and alpine ecosystems, plus geomorphology, evolutionary ecology, complex system science, and the interface of landscape and culture, he ties all of these things together in climate change. Yeah, so this is a concept that was a, in large part what influenced our conversation that started this podcast was talking about how do we get the right mindset to sort of solve these problems because I felt like that was the first place to start. And he does that a bit with his book, The Myth of Progress, which we talked to him about. His book highlights some of the challenges we face in terms of climate change from a different perspective than what you're probably used to hearing. So I think if you enjoyed what we're talking about, you're going to really enjoy his book. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation with Tom. He does a great job explaining things in ways that I could never do. So take a listen. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for taking some time to uh, chat with us. So first, I want to give you a moment to uh, introduce yourself to folks that aren't familiar with your work. Okay. Uh, my name's Tom Wessels. I'm a professor emeritus at Antioch University, where I founded the uh, master's degree program in conservation biology. I'm pretty much a generalist as a terrestrial ecologist. So that's my training as an ecologist. I have interest in forests, desert, alpine, arctic ecosystems, a strong interest in geomorphology, evolutionary ecology, uh, complex system science, sustainability, and the interface of culture and nature. So I, I cross a lot of boundaries in that regard. And I've written a lot of books. I think we're mostly going to be talking about material that's related most closely with my book, The Myth of Progress. I know before we started recording, I had mentioned that that book was uh, a huge influence on me personally. 
And um, I, I think it highlights some really interesting points around things like climate change. So I, I really want to first kind of talk about the way you tackle the very complicated subject of climate change. And I think in a way that is really accessible and isn't relying on abstract concepts like uh, measuring carbon in the air and things like that. I find like when I talk to people that don't generally believe in climate change, that if I go at it from the perspective of how you've brought it up in the book, the second law of thermodynamics and things like that, it becomes much more hard to challenge in terms of saying that's not real because I don't want it to be real. I mean, I think that that, yeah, the second law of thermodynamics, I think is really the foundation of everything when we want to start thinking about a sustainable future. Um, because what it states is, it states, well, there's basically actually two laws of thermodynamics. The first states uh, that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Pretty powerful idea. It means that all the energy in the universe today is exactly what it was some, you know, 13.8 billion years ago. But it's the second law that from a standpoint of sustainability really becomes important to focus on. And that says, although you can't create or destroy energy, you can transform it from one state to another. So right now we're using electricity to transform video and audio uh, feed we're working with. But the key to the second law is whenever a transformation occurs within the system where that is happening, there's always a loss of energy. And so that means for any open system that can take in energy or give off energy, they can be in one of three states. They, if they take in more energy that are being bled off from their transformations, then they're an anti-entropic or negentropic system. So that's what we were as children. We took in more energy and as a result, we grew. Um, and then when systems reach maturity, they become dynamic equ equilibrium systems. It means they take in as much energy as they're releasing uh, from their transformation. So that's pretty much us as adults. We take in about 2000 kilocalories of energy a day, and then we release about 2000 kilocalories of heat a day. But it's the last state that um, if, you're, if we're thinking about climate change, we need to focus on. That's the state where a system is bleeding off more energy from its transformations then it's taking in. And that is a state where a system is becoming entropic. And it's often said that as a system bleeds off energy and becomes more entropic, it moves from a state of order to disorder. And I don't like that because those are very subjective ideas. A cornfield can look very orderly, uh, but it's way more entropic than let's say a forest. So an objective way of measuring entropy is that as systems bleed off energy, they move from a state of complexity towards simplicity, or from a state of concentration of energy and materials to a state of diffusion of energy and materials. So a good example of this, think about a tree being uprooted in a windstorm. It dies, it becomes entropic, and all the decomposers that are breaking that tree down to extract energy out of it are simplifying the structure of that tree. It's complex molecules like cellulose and lignin get broken down to very simple molecules of carbon dioxide and water that just diffuse out into the atmosphere. And after you know many decades, that tree will no longer exist. It'll be completely reduced to very simple uh, molecules that have been diffused in the atmosphere or the soil. So it's been simplified and diffused. So this is uh, pretty much every sort of environmental problem we're witnessing in the world today is an entropic problem. You look at it, you're going to see systems that are being simplified and energy and materials being diffused. So uh, climate change uh, is the result of us diffusing huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that's an entropic process. And 
it's creating a lot of problems. We're just starting to really see. I think, you know, in the last 10 years, we're starting to get a glimpse of what's coming. And in terms of climate change, we're not going to actually see the impacts of what we're doing right now for another 25 years as a lag response. So I can assure you that the amount of violent tropical storms we're going to see are going to get to be more and more and more frequent. The amount of fires, the flood events, all that sort of stuff is just going to increase uh, as we move through time. Yeah. I think making it accessible in terms of this conversation to people that have, I guess, looked at it from a political lens as a left versus right issue or whatever, talking about it from a a very concrete understanding of these very basic principles, I think makes it a little bit more uh, digestible so that at least we're all on the same wavelength and we can kind of try to move the conversation forward instead of just letting things kind of continue how they are, where we're not really making any progress. We keep talking about it. And we can look at like Texas and say, you know, this this massive snowstorm, that's, you know, something that shouldn't be happening is happening. And uh, that that's really just a preamble of what the future has to offer. Our podcast has been primarily focused on this idea of thinking about the future and what we can do to make better systems. I'm curious about your thoughts, looking at different projects that have uh, sprung up over the last couple decades, um, things like the Zapatistas and Rojava, if you're familiar with them, that have kind of focused their communities and um, their local direct democracy that's centered on ecology and uh, using things like nested systems of direct democracy to, I guess, have accountability. Uh, if I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or um, knowledge about what they're doing. Actually, I, I don't. But I think if they're doing what I think they're doing, they're on the right right track because, you know, life's been on this planet for 3.8 billion years. It's not only sustained itself, it has thrived during that time. And it's worked out how to create systems that really sustain themselves. Uh, and at the core of it, it's all about creating these networks of robust networks of mutually beneficial interactions where every, that would be like every person in a community interacting with everyone else in ways that's benefiting everybody. It's all inclusive and it's all beneficial. And it creates this very robust system that has incredible resilience, tends to be very energy efficient. So you really get the benefits of that because you're not getting all that entropic cost and things like that. So I don't know if they're doing it exactly like that, but that's what um, basically nature does builds up these very robust networks of mutually beneficial relationships where every individual or organism doing what it needs to do for its own sake is creating conditions that sustain the whole. And they're um, by no means perfect, but I think they are an example of the self-determination I think that Andy is pointing to is the ability to change with your ecology when mm-hmm. you know catastrophic things happen or when unexpected things happen that aren't planned for you have to have an ability to change with that and i feel like our ability to do that now like with things like the pandemic and with increasing storms we don't really have that ability to sort of flex into what we need to be it seems very static and it doesn't seem like anything's changing which i think um makes the the challenge of climate change seem like it's not making any progress. Um, And that combined with, like you said, the time lag, um, as things get worse, it's going to potentially increase because as global warming increases, as the polar ice caps melt, there's more heat being trapped in the, in the biosphere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
that that's going to cause things to change faster. So all of those, th- all of these small issues seem to compound themselves, and that's why the complex system science. When I read um, the myth of progress, it sort of breaks it down and able to understand how it's kind of like a what's it called a Russian nesting doll. Yeah, it's all of these little problems inside bigger problems inside bigger problems, and we don't have the ability to change with it, and it, it seems overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's it is. It's a big problem because we've got political systems that can't address it. But I think the good news is that all large scale change in a complex system bubbles up from the bottom. Uh, If we're really going to make progress in any of these ways, it's going to be just from the average citizens doing it, Uh, you know, uh, and then if enough people get moving in that direction, then policymakers will start to kick in and maybe do something as well. And then change can start happening from the top too. But it has to really be built from the bottom up. And although we don't see much movement at the federal level, uh, you know, we can see it in towns, we can see businesses, we can see it in communities, even states are taking a lot more initiatives here than's happening at the federal level. And hopefully, if people can really start mobilizing and, and working together, then we can really start to do something. But, you know, we still have a lot of people out there that just think it's a hoax. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy because we've known for golly, since back in the middle 1800s that carbon traps heat. You can, you can do very simple experiments with you know middle school students where you can get these test tubes that come just filled with oxygen you know, or just filled with carbon dioxide or just filled with nitrogen or just filled with methane. They have you know, thermometers in them and they're sealed. You can heat them up and then just let them cool down. And you'll see that nitrogen and oxygen will cool down very quickly. CO2 takes a lot longer to cool down room temperature and then methane takes even longer. So we, you know, this has been known for you know, 170, 80 years. And so if we put CO2 up there, it means that the heat dissipating from the Earth to outer space is slowed, which means you know, we heat up the atmosphere, which means it's more energized, we heat up the oceans. And that means that the weather just gets to be more and more dramatic and extreme. While it it would be nice to say we can just, you know, if there was a concerted effort to try to um, bring our natural systems to what they were 150 years ago before we, you know, clear cut so much of the landscape, what's realistic about trying to improve the forest? So from your perspective, does it make more sense to start thinking about planting for what the environment's going to be in 30 or 40 years versus uh, trying to be what it used to be? Well, I think you have to do both. I think, uh, you know, we do, we know that things are going to change. Things are migrating, you know, species are pulling their ranges northward and stuff. And so we're going to have to help probably some of those species of trees that have really large seeds that don't migrate quickly in terms of their range expansions. We're going to have to assist in moving stuff. We're going to have to make sure we have corridors where species can move and things. But I think one of the biggest things we can do for climate change is just letting our forests age. You know, it used to be thought that, you know, when a forest got to be about 80 years of age, it stopped taking in carbon at, 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 at higher rates. In other words, the rate of carbon intake was slowing down. And that said, you know, now we can go in and log and that will rejuvenate it and stuff. What we know now is that um, trees continue to increase carbon uptake, uh, accelerating it as they get older and older and older. So you let a forest get older and it becomes a huge uptaker of carbon and a huge carbon sink. And then if you're looking at like, you know, temperate forests or even boreal forests, after about 80 years, more than half of the carbon is down in the ground. We don't even see it. 
So if we could just let our forests get older and older and older, we would take up a lot of carbon. I was saying, and do you think like we have a role in trying to accelerate that succession process? I think we do. And I think, you know, um, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to take some time, but I think people are beginning to understand because now we're getting the data that's showing that, you know, as forests get older, they're picking up more and more carbon each year. It's accelerating. It's not, you know, just going up at sort of an arithmetic rate. It's, it's going up at a geometric rate. That's a lot of carbon. So I think we just have to start thinking about how we work with our forests to let them get older. That doesn't mean we can't extract materials out of them, but I think we have to be much more conservative in, you know, our harvesting and everything else. It's, it's an important thing that we really need to do. Yeah. I, I have another question kind of on this idea of extractive, extracting from the the forest. Uh, one of the like very short comments you made in your book was regarding uh, we don't know the long-term effects of logging and things like that in terms of nutrient extraction from the soil. And uh, as a farmer, one of the things that I've really, like as I try to create not necessarily a closed loop system, but something that is uh, more regionally looped, I guess you could say, is the fact that despite everything we know, it doesn't seem like anyone's really figured out why we have to provide things like salt licks for sheep and cows and things like that. Like we know why they need it, but you know, that's not something they would have ever gotten in nature. And there seems to be a really vague understanding that that probably animals would find natural salt licks. But also as a hunter, um, I've, I feel like if that were a thing, we would have found them pretty quickly and um, use those as very easy hunting spots. So that doesn't really make sense. And it kind of brought me back to this question that you brought up of, we don't really understand the long-term implications. I'm curious now that it's been about 20 years since you wrote the book, or at least something about that, if, if there's been any new research on that, or if it's anything you've thought about further. I think there's a lot of research coming out all the time. So we're getting a better understanding, but still, you know, these, these forest ecosystems are incredibly complex. And we're sort of really in our infancy of understanding them. I mean, uh, Susan Seymour's work has only been out now 24 years. She was the first person that really saw the role that mycorrhizal fungi were playing in, in forest ecosystems. Uh, and mycorrhizae are, are a group of fungi that interact with photosynthetic plants. They extract their carbohydrate energy from those plants' roots, but they're not parasites because every plant they associate with they allow that plant to now take up way more nutrients and water. And many, many of our trees, like pretty much all of our conifers, uh, all the members of the heath family, which include blueberries and uh, you know cranberries and things like that, all orchids have to have a mycorrhizal partner. They're, they're so highly co-evolved, they cannot exist without them. So her work has showed that not only do these relationships happen between the mycorrhizal fungus and a, a plant, but it networks all the plants in a forest together into a integrated unit so that energy and nutrients and materials are going back and forth, even between different species of plants. So her study showed that at certain times of year, uh, energies are being extracted from paper birch trees and shunted over to Douglas fir. And then other times of the year, that flow was reversed. And taken out of the Douglas fir and shunted over to the paper birch. So we had no idea about that happening just 24 years ago. And now we're beginning to see like, wow, these things are way more complex and way more integrated than we had thought. I remember uh, when I was in college, one of my forestry professors said that trees simply compete. And so he would do these demonstration logging projects where he'd 
you know, do these patch cuts and leave one sole tree in the middle as a seed tree and saying, now this tree is really going to do well because we've removed all the competition. Well, <clears throat> probably about 40% of the time, those trees died and he couldn't figure it out. But what we know now is he destroyed that mycorrhizal network that they were relying on. So I still think we're in an infancy of these systems. Uh, they're way more complex than we know. And there's going to be a lot of future aha moments about new things we're going to learn about them. So I think that means that we need to be conservative in how we treat them and, um, you know, go slow. One of the things you also bring up in the book is this idea of the role of technology and uh, how we have to be pragmatic about the utilization of technology and really thoughtful about how we rely on technology or overcomplicate things with technology. And um, like, you know, we're talking about the fact that we need to make a concerted effort to be more efficient and, you know, we have to be more thoughtful. Is technology a component of that, do you think? Or do you think the, it's not worth considering the massive sunk costs in developing and mining and all of these things to continue trying to uh, utilize technology in terms of efficiency? Yeah, well, technology is a tool. And there are some appropriate technologies that we can work with, but it's never going to solve our problems. Matter of fact, every single environmental problem we have today is a result of technology that, that has brought about um, an unexpected consequence that we weren't thinking about. Uh, so I think it is an appropriate tool we can use, but really, if we're going to fix things, we have to dramatically change our worldview. Um, we really need to almost go back to more of an indigenous worldview where really had incredible reverence for nature, realizing we're a part of the natural world, we're intimately connected to it. It is part of us. Our well-being is defined by how well the natural world is doing and having uh, real tight, robust connections to two communities where everyone's looking out for everybody else. Um, when I teach my uh, principles of sustainability class, I say, you know, really at its core, sustainability is all about right relationship right relationship to ourselves, to our communities, to Mother Earth. Um, and uh, we've lost that, you know, that we, we never hear about it in our culture, but in our drive to have comfort, material progress, whatever else, we have shredded relationship, just absolutely shredded. It has gone way far away. I mean, I have one of my students was a, a teacher at an independent uh, high school. And before the earthquake in Haiti, she would take her high school juniors down there. This was a, Sp a Spanish class. And they'd go in these very poor villages and the people would come out just so pleased to see them. Very, you know, just happy. And, and they're looking at these people thinking, how can these people be so happy when they're so poor? And it started to sink into them what they had. They didn't have much material wealth at all, but they had community. And that was what was holding them together. And they started thinking, these students that came from affluent places, thinking, God, I don't even know my neighbors. I don't even see them. You know, we have a hedge around our lawn. And, you know, it's never talked about in our culture, but relationship within community and to the natural world has really been sh shredded. And that's not a healthy thing. It's been replaced. There's a whole lot of distractions and replacements that people use for relationships today. And that's a different conversation yeah. entirely. But I do agree with that. And I think that um, people's worldview does need to, to change. I feel like with technology and the internet and information being as readily available and at your fingertips as it is today, the world has felt like it's gotten smaller, but people have failed to realize that we're all global citizens. 
And I don't think people have taken on that civic responsibility of being a global citizen yet. They're still kind of operating in a smaller version of the world where if it, they don't see it, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. No, that's true. And I think that's also been exacerbated by media and all these other things and the fact that we do work longer hours and take shorter vacations and have less uh, disposable income than previous generations, that um, we don't have the resources to make those connections in communities. And like you said, with uh, the development of communities, things like hedges and like those natural barriers that eliminate the, the sense of community. It's hard to be held accountable to your local community for the ecological destruction you might be doing by driving F three fifty, whatever you know. Uh, you know, there, there's less accountability because of that isolation, which is just, I think, further accelerating some of these challenges. You know, it's interesting. One of my former students started a a, a timeshare, uh, you know, work timeshare thing in the town of Brattleboro, Vermont, and I think they have I don't know four hundred or more people involved in that. So. Um, everyone just offers something they can do as a skill that they're they're good at. And so if they put an hour of work in for somebody, they can take an hour of work out from somebody else. And it's marvelous because it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer doing pro bono work in that timeshare. It's, you know, one hour work is the same if you're someone who's just mowing a lawn for somebody for an hour. Um, but what they found was, and it wasn't sort of expected, was all these people that had never interacted, didn't know each other. All of a sudden we're interacting and even more than the beneficial work that was going on was this development of this feeling of real community of connection of wow uh we're helping each other we're a part of all this thing together um it's you know just something simple like that can really do a lot yeah and i think it speaks to our innate desire for that community that yeah. seems we seem to be very uh divorced from right now yeah, we are. And, and it is innate. I mean, we're hardwired to want. I mean, you know, uh, our species has been on this planet for over 200,000 years. And for 95% of that time, all people lived in basically gathering hunting clan groups. And their survivorship was completely nested in the well-being of that clan group. So everyone took care of everybody because that's how you did it. And we are hardwired to want to do that. And I think about how complex those relationships can be. You even just use the word nested, which goes back to what I was talking about, about the Russian dolls. It seems like in order to fix this, and like you said, it has to start on a, one of the smaller scales or one of the smaller dolls, if you will. Um, it has to start from there. And then we have to build outward in order to sort of correct uh, the path that we're on. Um, because right now, those, those changes and those um, connections aren't being made. And it really seems like those relationships, and I think in the book, um, The Myth of Progress, you refer to it as fuzzy boundaries. And I really thought that that was an interesting way to put it because it's not a hard line or a, you know, a line drawn in the sand so much. There's energy and things are able to pass through. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what we need to do with these relationships. There needs to be an ability to change and respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I want to kind of change gears a little bit. One of the things that you had talked about uh, was David Corden's work on regionalized economies where direct ownership and conversely, the outflows of the bad parts of capitalism, say dumping toxic waste in poorer countries or poorer neighborhoods, can't really be outsourced. And it forces communities to be much more thoughtful about things, whether it's industrialization or the way we treat our landscape, things like overhunting or overforaging, which is a challenge here. We live towards the Cape, Cape Cod. And, and you know, that's 
foraging is now a very popular activity, but it's destroying a lot of the slow growing things like ramps and so on. Do you think that we can still put these building blocks together uh, in terms of trying to create these um, very uh, regionalized economies while global capitalism and our our modern uh, understanding of capitalism continues to exist? Well, I think we're going to have to. I think, you know, this current system that we're in, it's going to fail. It's it's not a question of if it will fail. It's, I guess, a question of when. But my guess is sometime this century, it's going to fail. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to go back, you know, to where we came from. Um, again, I think like if we're talking about agriculture, uh, we just have to have a lot of farmers out there that are doing small scale farms that are working at regional and local scales. Um, a good friend of mine, Ricky Brook, has uh, the Seeds of Solidarity Farm in Orange Mass. And when he and Deb, his wife, started that farm back in the 90s, he said, you know, I... I've never seen anywhere in the natural world where the soil is turned over every year. Why would we disrupt the soil every year? So he decided he was going to do no-till farming, vegetable farming. He's done that now for about 25 years. And I know uh, soil scientists at UMass have been studying his soils and they think they're some of the most fertile that are in the state. And he started off with very poor soils. But, you know, he runs that farm by himself, just as human labor. He doesn't have any farm equipment or anything. He's got about two acres. But uh, because he does no till in the way he does it, he has no weeds. So all he does is he plants and he harvests. And <clears throat> the amount of produce he's getting out of there would top, you know, industrial agricultural farms. And he's doing it without any, uh, you know, fossil fuel input, um, just his own caloric labor. And what he's showing is if we had lots of farmers doing the same thing, we could easily grow a, a lot of food and we could support ourselves very, very well. And those farms would be way more resilient. They can deal with climate change because of their size. Um, so so they I have think, that ability to change because of their size? I think that also, but I mean, like he's doing using, I mean, the technology he uses is he has a solar panel to run his drip irrigation system and he has hoop houses. But <clears throat> that means he can mitigate a lot of that climate impact because he can do that. But you get these big farms out in the Midwest they're sitting ducks. If there's going to be a flood, there's not a thing they can do about it. If there's going to be a drought, there's nothing they can do about it. So yeah, I think small scale stuff is really the way to go. It, it decentralizes, you know, critical functional roles. And that's what makes the system resilient because if any one small farm fails, the rest of the system is fine. But when you have big farms and they fail, the system's not going to be fine. And so, um, yeah, I think that you know, complex system science, particularly the principle of uh, self-organization states that yes, we ought to uh, really decentralize all critical functional roles. So you look in the natural world, you know, if we were to go out, let's say around here into a, a wildflower meadow, and we wanted to monitor all the way from, you know, April on through till November, how many different insect pollinators we'd have out there, we'd probably find over a thousand species, all these different, you know, bees and flies and beetles and ants and all sorts of stuff, moths, butterflies. And that's that decentralization of that critical functional role. Whenever we start centralizing critical functional roles, the system becomes really, really loses resilience and sustainability. So I think we can see this in our large corporate structures. That's a real concentration of things. We need to decentralize these things and uh, create many, many more players doing the same thing to build up uh, resiliency. And 
the, the, those systems become way more energy efficient, or I should say energy frugal, because I think we need to think about that more than just efficiency, but frugality, like how we can actually reduce. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mari Bookchin, but uh, one of the principles that he talks about is the utilization of appropriate technology and in terms of that localization. So you had mentioned like he uses solar panels and plastics, like they're not inherently bad because they're technology. However, it needs to be very thoughtful in that use that still provides a utilization for things like small cities where that that uh, industry can continue to exist because they can produce those things, even if it might be slightly less efficient than a massive 100-acre solar facility that's making solar panels. The trade-off is that it's much more thoughtful and that that space can also be utilized for other things as opposed to just making solar panels. And it also won't damage the environment around it because there's a little bit more accountability and it's not sized so in intensively. Yeah, well, I was also going to say that, yeah, when you do small scale too, you will naturally become way more energy efficient because at small scale, you really can't be heavily mechanized. And mechanization is really one of the really big hidden costs for the entropic problems we're seeing. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a, a restaurant down in Greenfield, Mass. called the People's Pint. If you go there, they serve pretty much locally sourced food items. They only have one beef item on their menu. It's a, the hamburger or cheeseburger. It's locally sour sourced, you know, organic grass-fed beef from a farm about 10 miles away. So you think that about the embedded energy in the hamburger meat that's coming to the people's pint. Well, there's some embedded energy in this farm because they have fencing. There's going to be embedded energy in that. They do have farm equipment. They have, a, you know, some barns. They have to, you know, process the meat and then drive it the 10 miles to people's pint. But then look at McDonald's, like the largest hamburger producer in the world. And think about the embedded energy there. Now, right away, they're shipping steers hundreds to thousands of miles. These are grass, these are grain fed animals. So right away, you've almost got a tenfold increase in energy input into that beef. Then they get to slaughterhouses. Uh, their slaughtered machines pretty much process all the meat. You know, they, they grind it, machines package it, they box it, they freeze it. Then that stuff is shipped hundreds of miles to distribution centers and then shipped, you know, the amount of embedded energy in there is probably 10 to 20 times greater because of mechanization. So when you can be small scale and you're not mechanized, you're going to be really energy efficient. That brings me to a point. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing that I personally think can be a huge change to people's worldview and the way they consume is having those embedded costs actually represented in the price of the food. There's no way a McDonald's hamburger should be sold for a dollar and the hamburger at the people's pint is $15. It yeah. should be the other way around because those costs should be reflected in the price. And I think if that happened, I think it would change the way people view um, their food and the food systems um, and how they're how they're getting their their nutrients or whatever commodity that they're trying to consume. It's very true, and it also you know um, when you're small scale, it's also way more socially just. You know what you're doing is visible. Uh, if you're really a big multinational corporate entity, what you're doing is hidden from the view of people. But if you're small in a community. People know what's going on and they can choose to support you or not. So it's it just, you know, it's a win, win, win and all the way around. All this change is reliant on citizens doing it. So 
if citizens in, their, in, citizens in their communities decide, I'm supporting my local farms, I'm supporting these small businesses that are making stuff here, instead of you know, going to you know, Amazon or something, um, it'll change. Uh, one thing I think that uh, you know, this pandemic has shown is that small local farms really took off and did very, very well, where large industrial uh, agricultural enterprises really struggled. And that's because they don't have that resiliency and they don't have that community base the way a small farm does in its community. So I think it can change and it's going to change because eventually um, things are going to get in this economy to the point where these large uh, corporate entities are not going to be able to sustain themselves. And as things rapidly change, they're going to falter, but smaller entities will adjust and make it through. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it's like these, the larger companies seem to ignore, I guess, the concept of like a carrying capacity for, for what the, they do. the landscape yeah. they live on. Yeah. No, they're completely oblivious to it. And it's, again, it's, you know, part of our worldview, which is, you know, sort of misguided uh, that's brought that about. It's going to happen and it'll be a wake up call. Yeah, absolutely. So as somebody that spends a lot of time in the forest to continue on the food component, you know, you had mentioned uh, looking to like what uh, indigenous people had done on the landscape before colonizers showed up and kind of destroyed the food systems that had been in place. Do you think that that is still a viable option to help supplement some of this agriculture component where we should be spending more time working with those indigenous communities that have that uh, ancestral knowledge about, um, you know, things like how to propagate mushrooms throughout the forest and all of the other edibles and uh, utilizing foods that have been kind of lost as edibles. So hickory nuts, things like that, that have been kind of tossed aside. Yeah, no, I think it's. I think there's a lot of uh, indigenous knowledge that can be really, really useful to us. And you know, bringing back uh, indigenous practices is important because they can demonstrate how we can work with Mother Nature in ways that's respectful and productive. So yes, I think there, there's a lot of room there that could could prove very beneficial. It sounds like you're still pretty optimistic, despite I had a question written about how you had written this before Donald Trump was elected president. And, uh, you know, you're always talking about this idea of bifurcation and his election kind of felt like that, where we were making that progress, like that slow, you know, wasn't great, but it was like, all right, Obama is pretty, pretty far to the left compared to Bush and further to the left than Clinton. Like we're making that slow progress towards uh, what we need. And then it just seemed like that was totally just snapped off. And uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, I, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. Um, for the long term, I definitely have hope that things will be fine. I mean, this we're, we're in a bottleneck here. And how bad it's going to be going through that bottleneck, I don't really know. It could be pretty bad. But we'll get through it. Humanity is not going to cease to exist. And hopefully, we'll have learned our lessons and figure out how we can, you know, sort of regroup and live as we had pretty much for the bulk of our time on this planet in a way that we are connected to the natural world and we are really connected in our communities and we can be frugal in our consumption, uh, I guess, abilities. So I am optimistic in the long haul. In the short haul, it's gonna be really disruptive. I mean, I, I'm confident, like I said, that this whole socioeconomic system that we're in is gonna collapse. And how that plays out, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about because I don't think it's productive. But I think we will get through it. And uh, I think that, you know, centuries from now, uh, if humans are wise enough, things will be okay. But we're going to have to go through a disruptive time. 
Yeah, and that's like this whole podcast has been just kind of on that. Like, we don't want to focus on the the collapse component, but kind of what are the things that we should be learning right now for a better world? And a lot of that's been focused on the concept of food. And um, yeah. I, 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 as somebody that does spend a lot of time foraging and out in the woods and just generally fishing and all those other things, I, I do think it's really important to think about our relationship with not just how we grow food, but that natural world that um, you know, especially. In North America, mm-hmm. or what what we call North America today, uh, had traditionally been inextricably tied to how people had lived. Well, I'll, just, I'll just add on. I think yeah, becoming more food self reliant is really important. But I, I think a, a critical component is going to be building healthy, resilient communities. I think we've we've really lost that, and I hope, and I, I just don't know with the younger people today that are so into social media, the skills that are really needed are where you are in real time and place. And that's interacting with people that are your neighbors in your community, working together to create networks that are going to support you and everybody else. Um, So I think that that's a really important thing we have to be doing. And we need to be teaching young people about this because I think of all the generations, they're probably the ones that may be least prepared. If they're social media savvy, they might not be, uh, you know, community-based savvy in their own local communities. Yeah. Right. And I think that's an important uh, relationship because um, starting this podcast, we do focus a lot on food systems and uh, food for me is the way that people are going to change their worldview um, because that's pretty much what happened in human civilization is once people changed how they were eating and started agriculture, that changed the entire course of humanity. Um, So if we are going to make any big changes, it's going to be, I think, in the food systems. But in order to support that, uh, I think you're 100% right. Um, We do have to we learn to build and um, nurture the relationships just like we do our food system in order to get um, the support we need um, and the resiliency we need in the community in order to survive together. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And, you know, I will say uh, one of the interesting things about starting this podcast was that it was a conversation we had had about, you know, what comes after uh, on a car ride, actually. And, you know, we've had so many younger people reaching out and asking for advice on farming and you know, I thought I was just, you know, my family's from Italy and they were all farmers. So that's just kind of how I was raised. And um, it, there seems to be a really authentic interest in learning about food systems and trying to figure out more about nature. Unfortunately, it is usually very through uh, an Instagram lens through that social media and like the component of how I envision myself and you know using social media as a means to say look at how in touch i am with nature but there there seems to be a very genuine uh, interest which gives me a little bit of hope for the uh, upcoming generation no it's very true i'm you know up to about 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago i remember going to uh like uh nofa conferences around new england uh you know or you know conferences for organic you know farmers and they're all growing older and they're all sort of bemoaning the fact that that young people weren't following in their footsteps. Uh, But about 10 years ago, I was at a New Hampshire uh, conference and I'd say one third of the people there were people in their twenties and most of them were female. So it's like, I think with young women, it's really been a resurgence uh, in terms of, you know, farming. It's been a big, big thing. And that's a very positive thing because, you know, I think, um, 
job security, quality of jobs is getting harder and harder for people to find in, as our economy develops. But farming is a great job for people that are committed to it. Definitely not going anywhere. Always, yeah, no. always going to need farmers. Always going to be really essential. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm in my 30s, my mid 30s. When I was in college, the idea of like local food was just starting to become a thing. And now I I look at like young kids and the opportunities they have for things like organic foods, free range foods, access to all these different things. We have an intern that uh, does all most of our editing, and he actually is in school in Vermont. And he's like, I want to go be a farmer when I graduate, and he's going to school for botany. And um, it just it's really inspiring to see that a lot of kids really seem to be taking up the call in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it is. It's very encouraging. Thank you so much for coming on. It was great to have you and hear your thoughts on a lot of these subject areas. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We always appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Elliot. This is Andy. With a Poor Pearls Almanac. Almanac.